Folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, May the 26th, 2022. This is episode 3102 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Here's a lineup I have for you today. And the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, uh, you get to hear from someone you hear from all the time, not just Dr. Paul or Chris Rossini, me, because I got to be on Dr. Paul's show this week, and when uh, when Chris put together the highlight reel for us, he decided to include me. So here's what we got. Central banks are striving to rip you off, but don't worry, they're striving to do it in an orderly fashion. You'll hear about that from Dr. Paul. You'll hear yours truly here, Jack, talk about getting out of tyrannical states and moving toward more liberty. And Chris Rossini will back clean up on that segment and tell you why looking to government for solutions to violence is a bad idea. I'll have some follow-up on that one. Nicole Sauce, to lighten the mood a little bit today, will talk about brewing up cold brew coffee like a pro. Nick Ferguson will talk about using sawdust for mulch rather than wood chips. Tim, the tool man cook, will give you a segment about generators. For newbies, for people that are really not sure. I think this is a great one. It's something we should probably talk about more than we do. Dr. Bones will talk about the ins and outs of dealing with osteoarthritis. Dr. Ken Berry will have some follow-up on his recent segment about nitrates and the safety of high meat diets in general due to some comments on our blog. I responded to these comments and sent them to Ken and said, you can do a follow-up on this if you want. It's up to you. And Ken being Ken was more than happy to do some follow-up. That's what I love about Ken. You know, I've said this about Ken before, and I agree with the the same sentiment about Doc Bones. The original word doctor in the Greek, where modern medicine comes from, meant teacher. A surgeon was a person that did things to you. A doctor was somebody that talked to you about your health and helped you improve it. It's true. And Dr. Ken truly is a doctor, is a teacher. And then I'll back clean up. I'm going to talk about time preference. I've brought that term up a lot lately in discussions about Bitcoin and hard money. I'm not going to do it that way this time. I'm going to talk about time preference from overall self-discipline. And what I see as being the biggest shortcoming we have in Western society today is a lack of self-discipline that is directly applicable to us having an upside-down, backwards, clown world form of time preference where we make stupid deals with the government, stupid deals with corporations, and most importantly, we make stupid deals with ourselves. We'll talk about all of that more uh, today. Uh, Really, I want to also throw out kind of a a pitch for the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee. I'm going to be there. Nicole Sauce is going to be there. John Willis is going to be there because that's his place. A bunch of other really cool-ass people are going to be there. There's been a link in uh, the show notes pretty much every day for the past couple months. I've been sending it out in the Daily Mail as well. It'll be in the show notes today. I'll send it out in the Daily Mail as well. And It, it is an affiliate link, but I don't really care. You can just go to selfrelianceFestival.com, learn all about this. You should come out. You sh- if you can get to Camden the 11th and 12th of June, you should come out. When else are you going to be able to meet me Nicole, John Willis, Ken Berry, and a whole bunch of other really cool freaking people. And the price of the tickets is stupid cheap. There's a few left. You may want to get them while you can. And with that, let's drop on into the Ron Paul Liberty highlights of the week. Again, in order, you'll hear from Dr. Paul, me, myself, and I, and then Chris Rossini. If an individual lives beyond its mean, individual or corporation, or government, or anybody, if you live beyond your means... You will be forced to live beneath your means because you're borrowing into the future. You're borrowing money. There's always a price to pay. And that's what we're in the midst of right now is we have lived way beyond our means. And there's a lot of fake wealth out there. And it's being maintained because the dollar around the world is still acceptable more so than others. But all you have to do is read the business news and you find out there are some other countries that don't like us too much. Uh, we meddle too much and we have too many sanctions on them and we've been bombed too many countries and we have uh, a lot of interference. Now, I want to close with something I've said before 
that always caught my attention because I had an opportunity over the many years to talk to several, quite a few of the people in the Federal Reserve, and even, you know, many times the chairman would come twice a, twice a year to the banking committee. So, um, but I would point these things out and uh, saying, well, this, this is not good. You know, what are you going to do? He's, and, and they say, well, they wouldn't say that can't happen. You're, you're off the tangent. This can't happen. Prices, uh, you know, can go up and there could be problem. But they also had great confidence we can handle it. They, they came back with a word and not just one person. It was sort of, they were conditioned to say it. These, these changes that seem to be negative and dangerous, as long as they're orderly, they're okay. You know, it's sort of like gradualism where you don't notice too, too much. Well, that means they can get away with more without being noticed. But, uh, as long as it's orderly, I would say that, uh, their fallacies now have created a situation where things are disorderly and it's time to change the monetary system. It's time for the American people to wake up and find out what living within our means mean and what it's like to live in a free society. There is still an exceptional component to that which is the nation of, of, of America, the United States, right? And that is our form of government in a republic. And the federal government has done everything they can to eliminate that exceptionalism. But we saw it. It was revealed, like many things were, when the COVID pandemic hit and all these crazy lockdowns started. My life in Texas did not change. Now, there was some lockdowns and stuff, but I just ignored it. I just went on with my life. But then the rest of the state kind of like, went on with their life mostly 60 days into it because our governor woke up, found his spine, and decided we're not doing this and not participating and, and, and let the state go back to normal. And friends of mine that I grew up in Pennsylvania uh, and Florida, people in Florida, their life was a lot like mine. People that I, I had that I grew up with in Pennsylvania, they, they their lives were destroyed. And people in you know California and New York, it was worse. And I realized it wasn't just that their lives were worth. They were more afraid. They had been pushed to fear. But there were a lot of them that said, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. And people that were so proud of living in New York, I remember getting emails. I'm moving to Florida. I'm moving to Texas. I'm moving to, you know, some other state. And that is the remnant of the true exceptionalism that was this country, that we were to be laboratories of liberty. And by having the ability to choose the jurisdiction in which you resided and did business in, that meant that there was a check on stupidity and a check on insanity and a, a, a check on, on financial ignorance. And that if a, if a state did poorly enough in those areas and other areas, people would leave and take their wealth, their time, their talent, their businesses, their families with them. And if you want to restore that, then people need to get some damn self-respect. And they need to understand that when it comes to making the hard decision of moving, there are people that risk being shot by a machine gun to get over the Berlin Wall, okay? And we live in a republic where you can rent a U-Haul and move and make some new friends and establish a new business. And it may be hard, but if you don't understand that the place you're living is not worthy of the honor of your presence, it's over. Uh, as you say, you know, more government laws are not a solution at all. And as you pointed out, Criminals ignore them. That's what makes you a criminal. And if you need just proof that people ignore laws, the politicians themselves uh, set a terrible example. They don't follow the laws that they're supposed to follow. Every single one of them raises their right hand and swears to uphold the Constitution. But with, like, few exceptions, they break the laws all the time, whenever they can, if they can get away with it in the moment. And another real irony is that government is by far the most violent institution in our society. Nobody, no group of people even comes close. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we had 40 billion of our own dollars taken from us to be shipped to make weapons that destroy people. So now you're going to go to these people to stop a violence problem in society? I mean, that's like going to a fast food place and, you know, asking them to fix a weight problem. You're going to the wrong place. That's why the Second Amendment is there. The power is ultimately ours to defend ourselves against criminals. We cannot have 
each of us, a police officer who is armed, walk us around or stand at our door when we go to sleep at night. It, it has to be up to us to ultimately, if it, it gets down to a personal situation, to be able to defend yourself. So brief follow-up on Dr. Paul and Chris here. On Dr. Paul, I think one of the things that you need to take away from this is how good these people are at the things that they actually want to get done. And I think what happens is we look so often at politicians, central bankers, oligarchs, technocrats, bureaucrats, and we say, what a bunch of dumbasses. Especially, even though he's talking about the central banks, you got to understand, those people are smart. They know what they're doing and why they're doing it. But I, I think you can broaden it outside of just the central banks for, for, for Ron's point today. And that these people are good at what they do. So, yes, the central banks rip you off. Yes, they devalue the dollar, but they do it most of the time. Right now, it's kind of unraveling. I think we may be in an end-of-life death cycle to either the entire uh, Fed Reserve system or the current phase thereof. Remember, I've always tried to reinforce this. The current system we think of as being in place since 1913, but it's had multiple defaults and reboots in that period of time. 1933, 1964-1971 being the prime examples, with some other things in there that I won't bring up today. But what we cannot do is discount the talent that these people have, all these people in power, to be effective at what they're actually doing and not write it off as incompetence. So you look at a lot of things our politicians do and say, and they seem really stupid, and they may be, but what's the goal of a politician to gain and keep power? They're really good at it. Look how many of them get reelected, especially once they're into a place like the Senate. What's the goal of a bureaucrat to continue to climb the ladder, stay in power, and expand their power and control? Look at the results. What's the goal of a central bank to create ordered ongoing inflation in a way which enriches the banks and their buddies at the expense of the people. They're really good at it. Don't underestimate what these people are doing. And when you see something like the incompetence of the Biden administration, understand it may not be incompetence. It may be that the results we're getting, which are awful, are exactly the results that they want to get. On Chris's stuff, here's my short, short version of why looking to the government's solutions to violence is a bad idea. Because the government is violence. The government has nothing without violence. Take away violence from the government. Take away the ability of the government to use violence, and you don't even have a government in the form that we think of. Now, here's what I mean by this. They can pass all the laws they want, regulations, guidelines, etc. If they do not have the ability to enforce that by using men with guns, it is only advice, and we'll do what we want, and we won't do what we don't want, and society would probably still manage to get along. But would you pay taxes if you didn't have to? If nothing happened, if you didn't pay taxes at all, other than the consequences to society, would you pay taxes? And you might instantly want a knee-jerk to know. But I think that if the government had to earn your taxes, and especially if you could silo what you paid into the areas you wanted, you might voluntarily pay for them. Of course, we wouldn't have a state then. We all know what it would be called. Nobody wants to say it because then it scares people away. But the reality is people want to live in a well-ordered and run society. That is a thing. No one who doesn't want the state to have the power that they do is saying we would prefer to have Mad Max and Road Warrior. No one. But if you look to the government to solve violence, the only thing they have is violence. It's fighting fire with fire, and it's an often-used cliché, but unless it's done exactly right, the cliché doesn't work. And you're relying on people with a monopoly and no incentive to get things right other than for themselves and no consequences if they get it wrong whatsoever to get it right. That's going to be way beyond the exception. Way beyond the exception. Next up, let's talk about something a little bit more fun and a little bit more practical. What about cold brewing your coffee? It's not my thing, but i got to admit, it makes really good coffee. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Samantha about one of my favorite topics, coffee. Samantha had cold-brewed hollow roast at the Exit and Build Land Summit in Texas, and she's like, you know, i got to learn how to do that. How do I do that? And here's what you do. First of all, 
You start with freshly roasted beans because why put this much effort into crappy beans? Then take those beans and grind them coarsely, or if you are at the coffee shop, you can have them grind it coarsely. I know it's a sin against coffee to grind it and not brew it right away, but you know, having a good, consistent, coarse grind in cold brew coffee is really nice. So do that, and then you take a mason jar, you put about a quarter cup of grounds in for a mason jar, and you fill it with cold water, and if you have city water, I would suggest that you go either filter your water or buy some distilled water or spring water or something that doesn't taste like crap and put that in the mason jar, put the lid on, throw it in the fridge for 24 to 48 hours. What will happen is it's a cold extraction. It takes time to bring the flavor into the water. And then you're going to pour that out through a mesh screen or a coffee filter to just filter out the grounds. They do make really cool devices for mason jars that are kind of like a tea filter almost that fit down in there that you can put the coffee grinds in. So you just pull that out and then you have it in the mason jar. But there's no reason, no, no reason to buy specialty equipment for this. You can easily just pour it through a mesh style strainer. And then once you have that, that is your cold brew. Because it is extracted at a colder temperature, it will have lower acid. So if coffee gives you tummy issues, this is a great way to... Make your coffee in a way if hot coffee's not working for you. And then because it's cold brewed, it, it just has less of a bite. It's going to be a nice, smooth coffee. Now, if you're thinking about what kind of beans should I get for cold brewed, I mean, pretty much anything that you like, the flavor of works great. I know the most popular ones on my website for cold brewing are hollow roast dark, which is one of the most popular blends I have. Plus I have a a specialty cold brew blend that's really tasty. Those are available at hollowroast.com or go to any local roaster and just ask them what's tasty. You want something with more of a, I think, less bright and more of a rich flavor. And really, that's all there is to it. It's super simple. You really can't mess it up. A lot of people are hesitant to try things sometimes because they've never done it before. Just throw the grounds in the water, put it in the fridge, let it sit for a couple days, strain it out, pour that in your cup, dress it however you want to, whether you prefer it black, whether you prefer it with cream, whatever you like, do that, try it. If you hate it, you've just wasted one quarter cup of grounds that can totally be used as compost. And if you love it, you have a wonderful summer beverage. So go for it, Samantha. I hope this puts you in touch with some tasty coffee as you're going into the southern the summer months in Texas. And guys, I wanted to let you know, Self-Reliance Festival is June 11th and 12th in Camden, Tennessee. I'll be speaking there. Jack Spierko will be speaking there. Billy Bond from Permapasture Farms will be speaking there. Joel Riles, who you've heard about, Mr. Defense Dog, he'll be speaking there. We'll have Dr. Ken Berry, John Willis, a whole bunch of really awesome speakers, Bear Independent. That's June 11th and 12th in Camden, Tennessee. Tickets are only $60 if you get them online, and we're almost sold out. So if you want to grab your tickets, go to selfrelianceFestival.com or use the link that Jack puts in the show notes. Hope this has been really helpful. And if you want to follow me, check out my podcast. It's at Living Free in Tennessee. Make it a great week. Next up, we've talked quite a bit lately with Nick Ferguson about using wood chips for mulch in your garden. Somebody wrote in and said, I can't get wood chips. But I can get buttloads of sawdust. Is there any negative? Is there anything to worry about? Can I use sawdust as mulch? I sent it over to Nick, and this was his response. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com here with an answer to a question from the listeners. Just got home from a two-and-a-half-week consulting tour, 4,000 miles on the road, Literally an hour ago, and I'm rushing to get you guys another answer to a pressing question on gardening this time. And this question is from Stephen. I'll read it out to you. Can I use sawdust to supplement wood chips in my raised garden beds? Background. I'm unable to find any arborists that chip wood in my area. I can buy pine bark or cypress shredded wood for about $32 a yard. However, this may be cost prohibitive as I want to fill the walkways between my garden beds with mulch. I'm converting to min-till, and I'll need lots of mulch. I have a local sawmill, and they have a huge pile of sawdust. 
My thought was to put three inches of sawdust between the rows, then an inch of cypress on top for the final walking surface and erosion control. Would sawdust be a negative impact on my garden somehow? Thanks for everything you and Jack do. Stephen in Georgia. All right, great question, Stephen. It seems like you might be using this as mulch, but it also seems like it may be just a pathway covering. So I'm going to answer it both ways. Um, it, I'm almost positive you're describing just using it on the pathways. So if it's simply weed control in the pathways, there's no problem. You can use it with relatively little issue. I'd probably go with around four inches of sawdust for your rows, your walking rows, and if you want to add something else to the top of that for aesthetics, go ahead. If you're using it for soil coverage where the plants are growing, then sawdust is not the best, but it's still usable. You just have to make sure you use a thin layer. I'd start out with only an inch or two, no more than two inches, and see how it goes from there. The problem with sawdust is that it starts to decompose. Fungi will quickly form kind of an impenetrable hydrophobic mat and prevent water from soaking through it. You can overcome this problem by using subsurface irrigation through ditches and soaking like you have with swales. Uh, or you can use something like a soaker hose type irrigation, you know, the perforated pipe, um, you know, drip line irrigation. Otherwise, you may need to periodically break up the crust to keep the sawdust water permeable. <clears throat> also, Know that you will see a slight decline in available nitrogen until the wood chips start breaking down into soil again. So you'll likely need to increase nitrogen feeding to the soil matrix to account for that drop. Uh, you'll get it back when those organisms die and return to humus when the, the wood chips, the sawdust, breaks down. But until then, you might see nitrogen deficiencies. It's not a huge problem, but I just want to make sure you're aware of the need for that balance. So... Quick and simple answer, and now I need to get my goats unloaded from the truck and tucked away safe for the night, and then I'm going off the grid for a few days while I recuperate and rest up from this last tour. Still looking at heading up to North Dakota through Arkansas, Missouri, possibly Iowa and across, likely in September, but that's undecided as of now. And I'll definitely be back in Tennessee later this year as well as Texas. So shoot me an email with consulting in the subject line or check out the consulting tab on homegrownliberty.com for more information. I hope you all have a great weekend. Do good things. All right, next up, a segment from Tim the Toolman Cook, and we're going to talk about generators through the eyes of a newbie. And i, I got to say something. I think that it would behoove you if you do not own a decent generator with enough capacity to run the essential components of your home and at least 60 gallons of gasoline uh, stabilized to to get on board with that soon. I recently put out a couple of good deals on generators. They're gone, but you can do price watches, whatever. But at some point, this is something I think that we may really need this summer. And I recommend those of you that live in big houses with central air that don't have the capacity, the money, whatever, to do a full standby generator. We don't do it here because of a fuel issue. I can't put in like a 5,000-gallon pig. I've got a 120-gallon pig. It only runs it so long. I run multiple gas-powered generators, and I can refill gas. But to get into a position with at least one solid good-sized generator, like 4, 4K or up, plus a backup of something in the 2K range, Plus 60 gallons of gas would be a good idea. And if you can't do it all, the big generator and the 60 gallons of gas would come first. And I'll real quick, before I introduce Tim, give you my gas storage system that as far as I know I came up with. I haven't heard anybody else teaching it before I taught it anyway. Which is you get 12 cans and you fill one up a month. Now, at this point, if you haven't done it yet, you might need to bite the bullet. But your, your time... You know, over time, buy in. You'd buy a can of gas, right? A gas can right now, and go fill it up. Five gallons. You'd get a sharpie marker, marker, and a couple places on it in case it gets worn off. You'd write the number five because the one thing about permanent markers is they're not permanent. You'd write a five on it. Next month, you would get one and you'd fill it up and you'd write a six on it. June, six month, six. You do that all the way around the year until you get up to where you bought one and put a four on it from you know April. And then in May, you take the one with the five on it and you dump it in your car before you go to the gas station. The next time you fill up your car or your truck, you fill the can up and the car up and you bring it home. 
This means for the first year, you're buying five gallons a month more gas. And for the rest of your life, you buy no extra gas, unless you happen to use it up on your generator or something like that. It's a good idea to use a bit of stable in them. You don't even have to. Gas will store for a year. In, in, in proper gas cans, it'll store for a year. And since you're, you're, what you're doing is, once you get around that first year, you're burning five gallons in a gas tank that's going to be 15 to 20 gallons. It doesn't even matter if it's gone a little bit, right? And let you, but you might end up having to use your small equipment and what have you. And if you're like most people, you have lawn mowers, lawn tractors, etc. It makes sense then to have like, a couple gas cans that are like your everyday gas cans for that stuff so you don't go to your reserves unless you need them. And then couple that with what Tim's about to tell you and Jack's kind of fire under your butt, especially in the south, central, southeast, southwest, the whole damn south, it is very possible you'll see some rolling blackouts this year. So the more... You have stored up for your keto carnivore life in your chest freezer, the more important this becomes. And the more you have people in your household that are really adversely affected by extreme heat during the day, the more important this becomes. So at least one decent air conditioner window unit, whether you keep it installed or not, so at least if this happens and you can't run your whole house on a whole house backup, you can keep a room or two comfortable. It's all an investment, yes, but it's one that makes a lot of sense. We're there, and we've shored it up, and we're going to shore it up a little bit more this year ourselves. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment for the Expert Council. So let's dive right in. This week's segment comes from Crystal on Instagram. She sent me a comment on a social post I was asking about generators, that sort of thing, and she shares with me, I have a new, never-used generator in box in the garage. I asked my ex-husband to show me how to use it before he moved out, and he didn't. Are there any four dummy things that I should know that everyone knows about generators? I have exactly zero experience using one. Should I need to? I'll be learning on the fly. The ex didn't want to put the gas in it to show me, and then have the gas sitting in there. So, first off, don't leave it in the box. Haul it out of the box, and work with it. But I figured I'd put together some tips on like generator tips for new users. So this would help you and hopefully all the other people out there who maybe are just new to backup power, just getting interested or just have no sweet clue and are scared to ask. So first off, how do you pick one? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is if you're starting brand new, don't buy a used generator. Buy a brand new generator. It's going to cost you just a little more, more than likely, but that way you're not inheriting someone else's problems. So start with something brand new. Start with something that gives you a warranty so that if you have any issues early on, you don't have to try to manage them yourself. So it's looked after that way. Now, what type of fuel do you want to store? If you're brand new at it, natural gas or propane tends to be quite a bit cleaner and less maintenance all around. So if you're interested in that, if you're already keeping some sort of gasoline on hand, then maybe look at a gas generator. But figure out what type of fuel you want. Electric start or not? Spoiler alert, go with electric start because it's much easier if you're not used to pulling on those. Even for someone who's very experienced, generators can be very tough to start with a pull start. So get yourself one with an electric start, especially if you're brand new. And make sure it comes with a wheel and handle kit. So if you're all by yourself and you have to move it around, you'll be able to do that because generators are heavy. Now, Learn the starting procedure. This is the next part. Take the time. A lot of things come with, a lot of them come with laminated cards or stickers on the generator. Either get someone to show you or look it up online. Memorize the starting procedure. Practice it ahead of time so that you're ready to use it when the power goes out. Get familiar with the main parts. Find where the fuel shutoff is. I even still forget to turn the fuel back on sometimes. So know where that is. Know where the on-off switch is. A lot of generators need to be in the on position before you can start them. Know where the choke is, which is usually down near the air filter. Know how to use that. Follow the instructions. Usually there's a step-by-step, -step, at least in your manual. And then know where your push button and pull start is so that you can actually start that. But get familiar with the bare bones necessities of what's on your generator. Then start learning how to use it. Keep it simple. 
You don't want to have a whole home backup power system to start with. Run extension cords with three-prong, three-way splitters so that you're basically just running a generator and then feeding power to individual items that you need. Don't make it harder than you need to. Remember, you don't have to run everything at once. You just have a generator to give you emergency backup power just in case. And then, of course, practice moving it. So like me, I have mine stored in the garage. And every couple of months, I haul it out, bring it out to where I'm going to run it, and I run it, which is great for maintenance. But the big thing is know the route between where it's stored and where it's going to run. Be comfortable with moving it there yourself. And that way, when the weather's bad, the wind's blowing, it's raining, you already know basically what to do and that you're capable of doing it. All of this comes down to practice beforehand so that you're comfortable. And don't worry, everyone knew nothing about generators at one time. It always starts with the first step. Now, look at maintenance. How do you maintain them? First thing is keep your battery charged. If you have the option, buy one that has a built-in trickle charger so that your power, your push-button start always starts every time you want. The most important thing is to run it every month, every two months, every three at the maximum because there is nothing worse for a generator than not running it. Run it out of gas at the end of each time. So when you're running it on gasoline, turn the fuel off and let it run dry so that the gas doesn't stay in there and gum up. And then keep your popular parts on hand and either hire someone to service it once a year or learn how to do that yourself. That could be an intermediate step. And then real quick, make sure you store it properly. Keep it under cover. So out of the elements, every time you run it, give it a cleaning after it cools down. Make sure it's cooled down. I like to use brake clean. It gets that exhaust and oil and gas residue off it. Give it a quick inspection. Make sure no parts rattled free, nothing broke off. And if you don't have a built-in battery charger, make sure that's hooked up at the end of your test so that, of course, you drain that battery a bit. And the worst thing you can have is either a a generator that you haven't ran or a generator that won't start because you forgot to charge your push-button battery backup. So I hope that helps. That is just a real quick overview of some of the basic steps of when you're getting started. If you have more questions, anybody out there, and you want to follow up, send them along to me. Send them to Jack, and I'll answer them for the uh, expert counsel for you guys. And yeah, I because I love talking about generators, landscaping, handyman, solarpreneur, everything, a backup power, fuel storage, whatever it is. Send the questions in, and I'll gladly answer them for you. And if you want to keep up with me and find out what I'm doing, ToolmanTim.co is my website, and I have the workshop podcast three days a week, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, Thursday is preparedness, kind of the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. Saturday night could be anything from top 10 post-apocalyptic movies to 10 tips for content creators, and then Sunday tends to be an interview or a conversation episode with someone in the freedom, preparedness, and homesteading fields. So guys, thanks again, and as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Good stuff from Tim, as always. Next up, we have a segment from Doc Bones on osteoarthritis. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded Amazon Top 20 fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Adam, who asks, Are there any supplements that help extend the life of the cartilage and knees? I'm 43 years old, and my knees are starting to make crunchy sounds. I went to a bone and joint specialist, and he stated that the cartilage behind my kneecap was thinning. When I asked if there was anything I could do to prolong the life of it, he told me to avoid stairs and vertical steps when possible. Well, that's not really possible in my line of work, so I'm hoping there's something else that can help. I may have chosen the wrong place to go by asking a doctor who replaces joints for a living how to make the original equipment last. Thanks for any advice, Adam. Well, Adam, let me just head over to my desk here so I can answer your question. Those are my knees crackling there. (laughs) So, Adam, some doctors honestly give advice that isn't practical for a lot of people. Orthopedics has advanced a lot from the time when they spent most of their time sawing legs off, but it's probably not helpful to tell you to never climb stairs again at age 43. You probably still have a lot of second floors to get to before you're done on this planet. The crunching sound on your knees is known as crepitus, 
When hurt in the lungs, it actually could be a sign of pneumonia. But in your knees, it's caused by the rubbing of cartilage on the joint surface during movement. When it's painful, there's the likelihood of scar tissue or maybe loose or torn cartilage or other orthopedic problems. If it isn't, well, no specific treatment is actually necessary. For those who don't know, cartilage is the smooth elastic tissue that covers the ends of bones. Its purpose is to allow the bones to glide easily in the joint. But over time, the cartilage surface actually loses its smoothness. The crunching you hear is due to the cartilage becoming rough, so the bones don't slide as easily as they once were able to. Over time, arthritis can develop. Osteoarthritis can occur at any age, but it usually starts when people are in their 50s. It's the most common form of arthritis, especially in older individuals. It can affect just about any joint in the body, and it's known to be pretty much irreversible. Hands, hips, knees, and spine are the most affected, often beginning in an isolated joint. Osteoarthritis symptoms usually develop slowly and worsen over time. You should look out for pain with movement or after activity, stiffness, often first thing in the morning, tenderness when pressure is applied to the joint, loss of range of motion, a grating or crunching sensation when using the joint. Some people hear popping or cracking instead. This is what you're dealing with, Adam. Swelling, which might be caused by soft tissue inflammation around the joint or even by fluid accumulation in the joint space itself. And the formation of bone spurs. These are extra bits of bone which form around the affected joint. Just because you're not an old geezer like me doesn't mean it can't happen. Many athletes develop this type of arthritis in, for example, the knee at a relatively young age. Obesity is also a factor due to the increased strain on weight-bearing joints. To help prevent additional knee problems, work on strengthening the muscles in the front of your thigh. These are called the quadriceps or the quads. Walking, biking, and swimming can all be useful for strengthening the quads. If you get strong quads, it takes some of the load off of your knee joint. That makes it less likely the cartilage in the joint will wear down. Warm compresses are useful to treat discomfort and stiffness. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, like ibuprofen or aspirin, relieve pain, as does capsaicin cream or ointment. The worst cases may require oral or injectable steroids, though, but it's not an option in austere settings, certainly if you're talking about survival medicine. Experts also recommend natural medicines and treatments for joint pain. These are available in drugstores, health food stores, and, and online. Supplements like this might boost the body's anti-inflammatory response. Options include the antioxidant-rich curcumin found in turmeric. Curcumin capsules had a similar effect on knee osteoarthritis as the anti-inflammatory drug diclofenac in one study. 139 people with osteoarthritis took either a 50-milligram tablet of diclofenac twice a day for 28 days or a 500-milligram curcumin capsule three times a day. Both groups said their pain level improved, but those who took curcumin actually had fewer negative effects. Resveratrol is another nutrient that has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. It's found in red grapes, tomatoes, red wine, peanuts, soy, teas, a lot of places. In a 2018 study, scientists gave 110 people with mild to moderate osteoarthritis of the knee 500 milligram dose of resveratrol or a placebo combined with the NSAID drug meloxicam. People who took resveratrol found their pain dropped significantly compared with those who took the placebo. Then there's Boswellia, Boswellia serrata. That comes from the resin of the frankincense tree. Herbalists use it to treat arthritis, and boswellic acids may decrease inflammation and promote joint health. Other options include omega-3 fatty acids found in fish oil, devil's claw, and type 2 collagen. Some people use glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, or a combination of the two for osteoarthritis of the knee. There have been large studies, randomized controlled studies, on glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, but interestingly enough, they haven't provided consistent results. There's simply just not enough available research to determine their effectiveness. Just keep in mind that few have been proven clinically effective and some may have adverse effects. Indeed, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't regulate supplements at all, so there's no way to precisely know what a product contains. For these reasons, the American College of Rheumatology and the Arthritis Foundation, for example, don't recommend using supplements that you would think are standard, like glucosamine. Adam, you probably don't have arthritis yet, but it's something that you should watch out for, and I hope some of these strategies will help. This is Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about arthritis and 200 other medical topics in survival settings with a copy of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. 
You'll be glad you did. Next up, we have some follow-up from Ken Berry on comments that were made by someone on the blog. We don't get a ton of blog comments anymore. Most of the conversation happens on Telegram and Discord and social media and what have you. Uh, but I appreciate when y'all comment on the blog. You can always do that for every episode at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And I always see the comments, and I often see them more on the blog than anywhere else because there's not as many of them, and they all come to me by email, and email is my preferred method. When I sent this to Ken, I sent it with a permalink, and I figured that permalink would steer him to the second comment that he references and covers as well. That's really what I was asking him to follow up on, but he followed up on both of these. And I think it's great that we have experts that aren't like, hey, you're stupid for challenging what I said. It's more like, oh, okay, maybe I need to explain it a little bit more. And, and that's what I try to do. I know sometimes I've said this, that I come off like a dick because I'm so convicted in what I know is true, and I'm also convicted in what I believe is true based on what I know. But I said to somebody today in a YouTube comment, for instance, he, he said he, he gave me some shit over Kaczynski and not being fair to him, I guess, is what he was made. And I'm like, did you even listen to this? What I, I played 10 minutes of his manifesto. I said you can't. And he came back and said, I'm sorry, you're right. And I came back to him and I said, so did you not listen or did I explain it wrong? Because if I get it wrong, I want to know. If I haven't explained it sufficiently, I want to know. That's really important to me that we have experts that do the same thing, and it's clearly what Ken's got going on here. So here's some follow-up on concerns about meat, what kind of side effects eating so-called too much meat can have, nitrites, etc. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question from Brandon. It was in the comment section of one of Jack's recent episodes Brandon says, I know uh, this is a week late, but are nitrates good or bad? Uh, I think it depends if you consulted an actual plant-based doctor rather than received hearsay from Dr. Strawman, this issue would be better understood. So, And then there's also a second comment from Brandon that we might get into. First of all, let's talk about nitrates. This is one of the original and primary reasons that most healthcare providers and dietitians and uh, nutrition gurus demonize processed meat like bacon, even though bacon is not a processed meat. It's just sliced up and salted. Uh, but they say that the nitrates are bad for you. And we've been hearing this for years and years. I actually made a YouTube video about this that I go into lots of detail and also uh, link to the studies that that support my position in that video but here's the problem with nitrates human beings have been using nitrates to cure uh, meat with for thousands of years first of all and so you would think that if anything were causing disease we would have stopped using that a long time ago uh, just like doctors used to give patients lead and mercury as part of their therapy but they they kind of figured out through trial and error that that seemed to be bad for the patients. So they didn't do that for thousands of years. They stopped doing that. So nitrates uh, are actually now being studied by a couple of the, the gigantic pharmaceutical houses. They're trying to come up with a, a patented FDA-approved pill that is basically a nitrate pill because they know that when you have a good source of nitrates in your diet, it actually lowers your blood pressure. And because nitrates are converted in your body to nitric oxide, and you may have heard of that, if you get out in the sunlight, your skin actually converts nitrates in your body that your body both makes or that you've ingested. The sunlight converts those into nitric oxide, which actually lowers your blood pressure. And that's one of the many, many reasons that it's very good for you to get lots of sunlight. Now, the federal government has stepped into the uh, meat curing industry, and you, you guys know anytime the federal government gets involved, there's going to be uh, opacity, there's going to be obfuscation, there's going to be some bullshit involved. And so they actually have defined what you can say about cured meat, about nitrate use, and about uncured bacon. So when you go to the store and you see some bacon that says uh, uncured contains no nitrates. But then you look at and you do some research and you find out that they uh, air quote cured that bacon with celery juice or celery powder. 
the reason that they're able to say that that's nitrate free, even though it's not, it actually contains more nitrates than the, the natural salt that's used to cure bacon traditionally. The federal government gives them a pass to call that nitrate free, even though it actually contains more nitrates than bacon cured the traditional way. Uh, indeed, if you want to get lots of nitrates in your diet, even more than you would get from eating bacon, then just drink lots of celery juice, eat lots of beet greens, because they're actually, they contain far more nitrates than cured bacon does. And now, so I don't think that nitrates are a danger to human health. I never have thought they are. And that's uh, the research that I made that decision on or in the show notes of that YouTube video about is bacon going to kill me. But pharmaceutical houses don't spend millions of dollars investigating a chemical for a FDA-approved pill unless there's some good research showing that it probably does what they think it does. And so uh, Pfizer and Merck and Eli Lilly, they know that nitrates are good for you, or they wouldn't be spending millions of dollars trying to come up with a nitrate pill to treat high blood pressure. So I would encourage all you guys to not worry about, number one, not worry about eating traditionally cured meats. They're good for you. They're not bad for you. And then secondly, don't fall for the federal government bullshit lie that uncured bacon doesn't contain nitrates because it most assuredly contains nitrates and actually contains more than traditionally cured bacon. I hope that helps with the the nitrate issue uh, don't forget also that your body makes nitrates, and typically our bodies don't make things that are poison to our, our body. Uh, so why would your body make nitrates on a daily basis unless nitrates serve some physiological purpose? Hope this helps a lot. This is Dr. Barry. See you guys next time. So unfortunately, I, I, again, I, I don't think Ken, I mean, a great follow-up there on the nitrate. Thing because Brandon had some concerns about that as well from Ken's original segment. The actual comment by Brandon and Ken referenced it but didn't talk about it much. Brandon is also concerned about oxalate. And what he, he did is he published, he, he, he sent a whole bunch of links. And I love when people back what they say with, with links and references but sometimes we need to take them into understanding. And he says, oxalate is one of those molecules made by the consumption of hydroxyphalene, um, modified amino acid found in collagen, meaning found in meat. And he uh, notes a study that showed that you raise your oxalate in your urine if you eat lots of meat and how oxalate is bad and blah, 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 blah. Right? Okay, here's my issue with this. All of these studies that attempt to vilify meat and or meat and fat have 100% never been done where the people that were in the study, and generally these are uh, epidemiological studies, meaning they take the data based on what people say. So it's not a controlled study, right? And th this one's particularly not a controlled study. This is a survey. What do you eat? And this is what we noted with these people that we, we tested, right? Is not a controlled study would be we actually monitor what you eat. We, we, we know what you ate and what you didn't eat. And then on top of that, if you want to say that meat and fat in your diet makes these oxalates dangerous, you have to do two things. We have to prove that just because you pee out more oxalate that it actually does anything bad in your body. And to be fair to Brandon, he said if you have a healthy gut, it probably doesn't mean as much. Yeah, I agree. And if you want a healthy gut, stop eating all the inflammatory foods and foods that were, were born to kill you that we eat and we call human food today. If you, I've said this before, and I know people think I'm just going over the top, but I'm not. If you think that barley or wheat or rye or rice are human food, then I don't actually want you to do it. I just want you to look at it and think about what would happen if you did. Go try to eat it without first processing it, and you'll wish you didn't. You can make a case to me that a, a naturally occurring tuber is human food because I can pull it out of the ground and start chewing on it. It might not be the most nutritious, but it won't kill me, I won't die, I won't get sick, and I won't choke to death. If you try to eat the foods that we base our, our diet on today, 
without doing something to them first, most of them will make you really sick, if not choke you to death and or kill you. They produce substances that are designed and they say, don't eat me. Don't eat me. And even things that are like grains that we can eat raw, if we eat them raw and we don't put them through a process like, let's say, corn and nixtamalization, then when we eat them, we don't actually gain any nutrition for them. They pass right through our bodies. Everybody's had the corn experience, right? And that's even cooking corn. How much nutrition do you think you're getting from something that comes out of you in pretty much the same form it went into? The answer is almost none. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So first of all, we got this entirely skewed idea that food that human beings can't eat without doing all kinds of things to them first are human food. There's no animal that has to go through a whole bunch of shit to make its natural food into edible food. The closest thing would be leafcutter ants, and they're not converting food, they're growing fungus and eating the fungus. They don't have to do anything to the fungus once it grows. So if we look to nature, we see that. But the other thing is, all these studies that people always point to and say, look, meat is bad. It says right here, look, it's PubMed. It's peer-reviewed. None of these studies, and no one has yet shown me a single one, has shown me a study where meat and fat were shown to be bad, whatever the hell that means, in the absence of carbohydrate. So yes, and I've said this over and over and over again, if you're eating food that's bad for you, which is a carbohydrate-based diet, and you add lots of meat and fat to it, so now you have the bad of the carbohydrates, the sugar, the insulin imbalance in your body, and you add more calories, and you give the insulin more calories with which to stuff fat into your body, into your arteries, into every other place, and you do more damage and create more fat at the same time, all that cholesterol that's actually designed to hold your body together and heal, heal injuries, it not only will increase because you have more injury, it'll stick to places it doesn't belong. So showing me a PubMed study that says that this thing is bad and if you eat more meat, this thing happens, but only showing it when the person is also eating ding-dongs and Twinkies and bread and macaroni does not make your point because you're countering my point without actually countering my point. You're, you're insinuating something I'll concede to you. If you're eating a shitty diet, which in my opinion is eating what should either be livestock feed or industrial waste, that's what most of our food supply is, and you add more calories and fat to it, it makes it worse. I don't dispute that even 1%. Not 1%. But if you want to make your point, then you need to show me a study where high fat, high protein, but very low carbohydrate was tested, and you won't find one because I've looked. And then you have to ask yourself a very simple question. Why hasn't it ever been done? If it's so bad, and there's such a desire to prove it bad, why won't anybody spend the money and the time and the resource to actually test the actual hypothesis and then ask yourself, where have we seen this before? And with that, I'll roll right on into my subject. I want to talk about time preference. And I know if you've been listening lately and you're not a crypto person, you're not a Bitcoin person, you're like, oh, here you go, you're talking about Bitcoin and Lightning again. I'm not, I promise. If you want to make that connection, God bless you, go do it. I'm just going to talk about the basic principle of what your time preference is and how it leads to the habits that you have in your life and why it is the keystone issue with the problems of society today. I believe that actually having short-time preference conditioned and trained into us, and it is monetary. If you have a, a, a monetary instrument that is the United States Federal Reserve note, i.e. the dollar, that is a leaking battery of your life force, then the most intelligent decision that you can make is to spend it as quickly as possible because it will buy less tomorrow than it does today. And then the other intelligent decision will be that you have to invest it in things, i.e. accept risk, with your life force, your money, to hope that the investment that you make in Time Warner Cable or Apple Computers or Alphabet or Facebook or whatever it is, diddlydoohorn.com, right, will outperform inflation. 
And if inflation's 8% and your investment returns 10% and you think you hit a home run because your financial liar told you you did, you only made 2% on your money and it's not very much. And if you live in a society where that's the reality and the best investments and the best investment strategy are not available to the vast majority of people, because they're not, then you are going to have a short time preference. And the minute you develop a short time preference, everything goes to shit. Because you're worried about today, tomorrow, next week, and you're lucky if you're thinking about next month. The average American thinks about next month only when their vacation's coming, they're a kid in school, and summer starts. Right? Some good thing happens next month, they actually think about next month. And it's about as far out as they go. We think about Christmas when it gets around Thanksgiving. We think about Thanksgiving when we get to around Halloween. Think about it. Honestly, be honest with yourself in your life. My quote of the day that goes with this is from William Feather. And he says, if we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. And it ties right into what Ron said today in the, in the, in the Ron Paul Liberty Report highlights. If, if you live beyond your means, you will eventually live beneath your means. And that's what America's realizing today. Because the world is teaching us discipline because we don't have it. And we've been riding on the freeway for a long time. The free wave, not freeway, for a long time. Or maybe it's the free way of printing money for a long time, and it's wearing out. And it's why so many people were so okay with, yeah, give me the stimulus check during the COVID pandemic. Because they didn't understand for two grand or three grand or five grand or whatever you ended up getting, you were trading that today for $6 gas tomorrow. For 8% sustained inflation tomorrow. If you knew the deal, you might not have made the deal. But I think most people in their heart even knew what the deal was. But what? That's off in the future. I'm worried about today. It destroys the family. If I am a father, and I'm unhappy in my marriage, and I have a couple kids, and I want to be happy now, I have two choices. Fix my marriage and be a good father, or use the easy out of divorce in the modern world, and yeah, maybe pay some child support or some spouse support, something like that, but go off and find something else to make me happy. If I have a short time preference, the decision's easy. If I have a long time preference, the decision's easy to make and hard to do, but I'm going to take it, and that is fix my marriage. Oh, this person that I'm with, barring that, like, she didn't set the house on fire, become a danger to the children or what have you. And it goes both ways, women with the man too. If my time preference is long, I'm thinking about my grandchildren that aren't born yet, like our freaking grandparents did, and not, oh, that girl winked at me today at work. And I'll realize, you know, some of the some of the wisest words I've ever heard come out of my wife. Doesn't speak much, but she makes a damn good point when she does. Love is a choice. It's not that feeling of spark in the beginning. It's the choice to go the distance with the other party. Because being with somebody your whole life is hard. It's incredibly rewarding, but it's going to have its challenges. Where is your time preference? So then we destroy the family. So then children grow up fatherless. And every damn one of these school shooters that's happened in the last 20 years was a fatherless child in some capacity. So then we have violent youth. Then we take our children and we program them with short-time preference as well in our school system because everything's about the A. Everything's about the only long-time preference to a kid in our school system is someday you're going to go to college, which is the same damn system that they are already in in their developing mind. So it's all short-time preference. And then you tell them the world's going to end because all the evil people are going to make the seas rise and drown you to death, and it's never going to be any better unless you can, I don't know, yell at your parents who aren't going to listen and half of them aren't there. What do you think you end up with as far as the outlook, the morale, and the morals of our young people today? They're dashed and they're destroyed. And, it, it, and, and then... Well, why do we have an epidemic of drug abuse in our young people? Well, if there's no tomorrow, what the hell? I feel good now. I'm telling you guys, it sounds like an oversimplification, but the problems of the world are, in the words of Bill Mollison, embarrassingly simple. 
embarrassingly simple. Every single major problem in society today can be made, I didn't say fixed, made better by switching the time preference of society from short to long. Because if we do not discipline ourselves, the world will do it for us. Another way of saying there is no free lunch. Whatever you do today will affect you tomorrow, whether you think about tomorrow or not. And if you are a parent, it will affect your children. And if it affects your children, it will affect everybody they touch. But there will be no one that it affects more than their children, i.e. your grandchildren. And then a chain, a cascaded chain of events takes place. And there's only three ways that it ends and ceases if it's negative. So you're doing shit that's going to screw up your kid, that's going to screw up your grandkid, that's going to screw up your great-grandchild, etc. There's, there's three ways that it stops. One, your child or grandchild or somewhere down the line, in spite of it, changes their own time preference, and changes the chain of events. That's one. Two, you screw things up so bad that your prodigy decides it's not worth bringing children into the world and goes fatherless and motherless and your line ends. Three, you fix it now. Only one of those do you control. Only one of those exists within your circle of control. You control you. If you are only thinking about today, tomorrow, next week, and maybe next month, don't be surprised when your kids do the same thing. And if your kids are up and grown now, don't think that because you change, they're going to change quickly. All you can do is advise. But you control you. We have a whole movement. Men going their own way. That means men consciously choosing to never be fathers. They're smart people. They're good people. They're the strongest people in the, on the male half of society that we have in general are the ones making this choice because of how they've been conditioned in spite of that fortitude into having short time preference. I don't want the risk that goes with fatherhood in a family court system. That's the main reason they give. They're not all a bunch of guys playing Call of Duty at 38 contrary to what you might believe. Many of them are bu building significant wealth in their lives. They're, they're accomplishing things. They're just not getting married and they're not reproducing. So even though they're doing things for their long preference, they're not thinking generational. I said something this week on social media. I'll repeat it here and we'll wrap this segment up. Here's what it was. Time preference of losers equals short. Time preference of winners equals long. Time preference of legacy builders equals generational. Measure your goals in the life cycle of oaks. Are you planting trees under whose shade you know you shall never sit? I mean that both in putting an acorn into the ground And I mean that in putting an acorn into the generations that will follow you. Are you thinking in a short time preference as a loser, a long time preference as a winner, or in a generational time preference as one who plants trees and builds a legacy? With that, we've wrapped up. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will be back tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. We'll be covering a lot of things tomorrow that are more of the topical nature. I'm finally going to speak on the shooting that happened in Texas, and I've waited until tomorrow to get enough information to talk about it without sounding like a dumbass. Uh, we're going to talk about some other stuff tomorrow that I think you'll find really interesting. How about Moderna having to throw away, literally throw into the trash, 30 million doses of the clot shot? Yeah, that just happened, and their, their CEO, president, whatever, was at uh, the World Economic Forum bitching like a baby about having to do it. Um, we're going to also talk about removing the cost of a thing or perceived cost of a thing, what it actually does to its value of those receiving it. 
So if something becomes free, the value of it in perception goes down, and the value of it in reality goes down as well. I think that maybe it's a mistake to make too many things completely free for people because then they don't appreciate it, and then they don't use it, and if they don't use it, they don't gain the value of it, even if it's extremely valuable. And I have a bunch more. And tomorrow, being an Outback with Jack, it will be a live stream on YouTube and Odyssey and Float and Rumble and every other place we are. Maybe I'm going to add D Live. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that running by tomorrow. I got to figure out how it works with RMTP and all that. But I should be on eight platforms sometime by next week. You want to get in the live streams? Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social, and look up the Telegram channel. Easiest way to make sure you get alerts about that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. They pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 